0: What do dragons, juggling, and world-building have in common? Are you wondering what chicken stacking is? Curious how an aspiring comedian turns into a New York Times best-selling author? Today we're talking with fantasy author Brandon Mull. Brandon gives us some insight into his writing career, what motivates him, and how his faith influences the stories he tells. This is All In, an LDS Living podcast where we ask the question... What does it really mean to be all in the gospel of Jesus Christ? I'm Erin Hallstrom, and I'm excited to talk to Brandon Mull, author of Fablehaven and the companion series, Dragon Watch. Brandon, thank you so much for joining me.
1: I am really happy to be here.
0: Okay, first off, I read the bio on your website, brandonmull.com. It's your website. Yeah. I have some questions. Shoot. It says you worked as a comedian, a filing clerk, a patio installer, a movie promoter, a copywriter, and briefly as a chicken stacker. So please explain to me what a chicken stacker is.
1: Um, A chicken stacker is like in the circus. Sometimes they build pyramids out of chickens, and that's not true. Um, A chicken stacker was Tyson's Frozen Chickens. When they would have sales on chickens in grocery stores, I would be the guy that stacked the dead frozen chickens while they were um, on sale and selling fast to keep the bin full. And it was exactly as glamorous as it sounds.
0: I honestly had no idea what that was, what that answer was going to be. I was going to Google it, and I chose not to because I wanted to hear it just from you.
1: It's a difficult job title. Um, It's it's an accurate job title. That's all I did was stack chickens. Like, that was my exclusive job was to stack chickens.
0: When chicken was on sale.
1: When it was on sale. And I would go to different grocery stores, depending on the sales, as a representative from Tyson's Chicken to stack them. Okay.
0: Interesting. Um, Comedian. Are we talking stand-up?
1: I ran a comedy troupe in college called Divine Comedy at BYU. Oh,
0: sure.
1: Um, I was the president and one of the head writers for a long time. And then I also did stand-up, but mostly sketch comedy.
0: That's so cool. What was your best joke?
1: Oh, my gosh. It was like skits. There's a skit called Lord of the Engagement Rings. And if you looked that up online, you could probably find it. And it's reasonably funny.
0: So um, the bio goes on to say that for a couple of years, you lived in the Atacama. Did I say that right?
1: Yeah, Atacama.
0: Atacama Desert of northern Chile, where you learned Spanish and juggling. So um, because I speak fluent Latter-day Saints, I'm guessing that was a mission?
1: Yes, that was a mission. Um, I was there for two years. It's the driest desert in the world. I think there's like a spot in Antarctica that's drier, that's technically a desert, but like of like a normal, traditional, what we think of as a desert. It's the driest desert in the world. I didn't see rain the whole time there. Um, I had a mission companion who taught me how to juggle while we were there. We were like teaching at an orphanage. Mm -hmm. You, You know, we had like service time we had to fill in our mission besides just proselyting time. And one of the services we did was teach values classes at an orphanage. And we tried to teach them the value of hard work. And as our object lesson um he taught me how to juggle and we'd come back and learn like i'd start from not being able to juggle and show them how through practice i learned how to juggle i don't know it made sense at the time
0: do you still juggle yeah
1: i mean like not professionally
0: well sure but yeah i can juggle you found some other talents i can i
1: can comfortably juggle like you know if it's like hey uncle brandon juggle these three oranges i can be like all day long sure
0: you have clearly found a writing or a calling i should say as a writer yes have you always wanted to be a writer
1: i've always wanted to be a writer since i was a little kid yeah. Um, well, I've always made up stories in my head ever since I was a little kid. I didn't know I wanted to be a writer necessarily, but I knew I loved to daydream and imagine. Um, when I read The Chronicles of Narnia, when I read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe at around 10, that was the book that made me love to read, and that was the book that kind of broke my brain and opened up all the possibilities of what a story could be. And from then on out, I daydreamed about fantasy stories, kind of all growing up. It's, I lived in my head. Sort of became my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. Um, if I was bored in class, if I was, as I got older, as if I was stuck in traffic, mm-hmm. I would invent stories in my mind to entertain myself. So by sharing these stories, I'm sort of sharing my coping mechanism with everyone.
0: So when you were younger, it was your imagination that went crazy. When did you start putting pen to paper about it? Did you start playing around with that earlier?
1: I played around with it as a kid and was very frustrated by how what I saw in my head seemed so vibrant and cool and amazing. And what I wrote on paper just looked like terrible and boring and nothing like the stories I loved. Um, and, and it took time for me to learn that there was a craft involved in taking what I saw in my mind and communicating it in a way a reader could enjoy.
0: I remember when Harry Potter came out, my mom says to me, you're a good writer. You could, why, can't why don't you just write a Harry, uh, Harry Potter book? And and I you know had to say to her, well, that's a little harder than <laughs> mom because it seems so simple right and i think there's some people i mean maybe it doesn't seem so simple but in some ways you think oh if you have this vivid view of what is happening in um in your head you can easily write it down but it's trickier than that
1: it can seem simple because it's not that hard to think of something cool yeah you know what i mean you're like oh i thought of something cool i could write a good book and one of the things i have had to learn as i matured as a writer is that there's kind of always a better story to tell, always a better way to tell it. There's a lot of craft involved in how you build and communicate a scene. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years, by paying attention to how my favorite authors built their scenes and by practicing writing my own scenes, I've gradually gotten better at it. I think I still have room to improve.
0: So you've always been a fan of fantasy then, maybe from a young age. Yeah. Has that been your primary focus or do you read other genres?
1: I read other genres, but like for me... Fantasy always kind of had the special sauce. Yeah. Like I loved the big imagination and and the the kind of storytelling you could do with fantasy. Um, books like Narnia and Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter are some of my favorites um, and, and helped shape the kind of stories I wanted to tell. But I've read, you know, I like some of the classics and I like sci-fi and I like just adventure stories. If I had to make a theme through the kind of stories I like, it probably would be adventure. Like I just want a big adventure when I read.
0: Why do you think stories are important?
1: Well, Stephen King has a fairly famous quote where he said, fiction is the truth inside the lie,
0: hmm. which I
1: think sums up a lot of the practical value of stories, which is that, you know, through these made up stories we can say true things. Hmm. Right? Even with a made up fantasy story, you can say true things about life or about all sorts of things. So there's there's some practical value there. Mm-hmm. You know, if you wanted to do what's the most effective study of the human heart and mind, you could make a pretty good argument for good fiction is the most effective study of the human heart and mind. Because if you study biographies, you get someone's guesses as to who somebody is. If you study an autobi- autobiography, you get somebody pretending who they are. <laughs> right? like it's very hard to be honest about yourself. Um, but you get fiction and you get talented artists who are trying very hard to bring people to life and show how people behave in different scenarios. Yeah. Um, and when it's done well, it comes to pretty close to being a study of the human heart and mind. Um, As far as for fun, though, like for me, part of the value of stories is it's a way to escape, a way to experience things you'll never experience in your own life. Um, Fiction can be a mirror teaching you about yourself. It can be a window teaching you about others.
0: And you specifically write to the middle... Age reader. I mean, what's is that the mm-hmm. the target you would say? I mean, although I think Fablehaven in particular has found a wider audience than that.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the the name of the category is middle grade, mm-hmm. which means it's you know kind of some of the middle grades in school, right? Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of middle grade, especially when it's done well. Um, could fall into this category that I would call Harry Potter middle grade, because mm-hmm. Harry Potter is technically middle grade. Mm-hmm. And Harry Potter middle grade, the kind of books I write, tend to be thicker than traditional middle grade. They're mm-hmm. thicker, they're more complicated. It's telling a story that an adult could enjoy, but it's got a young main character. And that Harry Potter middle grade is one of the most broadly read categories in all of fiction. It gets read from ten to a hundred. You know what I mean? Like it.
0: Oh yeah. Anyone who's
1: sure. o- anyone who's open to a good fantasy story and doesn't mind a young main character can can connect to that category when it's done right. And, and not all middle grade is for adults, but mine is definitely the Harry Potter variety where I get lots of adults, lots of teens who who read my stuff along with you know ten year olds, twelve year olds.
0: Were you influenced by J.K. Rowling?
1: Um, I was heavily influenced by J.K. Rowling. If I had to pick the books that most influenced me, it was Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe taught me how imaginative a story could be. Lord of the Rings taught me how realistic you could make a fantasy world feel. And J.K. Rowling taught me you could write a story with a young main character, but make it really smart and twisty so an adult could connect too.
0: Cool. So I want to talk about Fablehaven. Sure. Was that your first novel?
1: Fable Haven was my first published novel. Okay, I wrote one other novel before then that turned into the first in my Beyonder series, oh, okay. which was the series that came out after Fable Haven. But I'm glad Fable Haven was my first published novel because that first in the Beyonder series, when I first wrote it, it was definitely a practice run. Um, when I rewrote that book after Fable Haven, it changed quite a bit, and I, I'm glad it had some time to incubate and change before it came out. Um, but yeah, Fablehaven, so that was the first the world ever saw of me, was me writing Fablehaven book one. And that was the book that let me become a professional writer.
0: Which is amazing to me. You had so much success with your first, first was that just really satisfying that it, people it, responded so well to your first offering?
1: It was enormous relief. Yeah. Because you're really hoping that people will like it and connect to it, and you have no idea how to gauge if that will be the case. mm mm-hmm. Um, except for putting it out there, and so yeah, I mean, it was an enormous relief. All my adult life, I've wanted to be a professional author. It's what I felt pretty sure was my best talent, and I knew that realistically, it might not happen. You know, like it's it's not everybody who gets to pay the bills writing books. It's a pretty niche kind of job, and so I I, I felt enormous relief that the book connected in a way that let me quit my day job and. And devote my time to writing fiction.
0: You could always fall back on chicken stacking. I could
1: always go back to chicken stacking. (laughs) I did not learn patio installing very completely. (laughs) I was definitely an apprentice, but you know.
0: I read that Fablehaven has been published in more than 30 languages. That is true. What is that like to have people of different cultures who receive it?
1: It's a fun thought experiment for me to realize there are people that I cannot communicate with verbally yeah. who have my stories and characters in their minds. One of the things that hit that home was I got invited to Poland. And I went to Poland and had spoke to a gigantic audience of people who were all wearing headsets, that the headsets had the translation of what I was saying, which was very odd because you'd tell a joke and then have to wait a weird amount of time to see if it landed or not. <laughs> and you're somewhat, somewhat going, how long do I wait? You know, and then, yeah. and then you get a laugh um, sometimes. And and it had big signing lines and like people really came out. Like I didn't know what to expect. And, and I found out, yeah, it's like they're best-selling novels in Poland and very popular. And, and that was interesting and strange and cool, you know, to, to see that you could write a story and, you know, hats off to the Polish translator because it takes a good translator to make that possible. And yeah, I mean, like they've been bestsellers in France or different, you know, they've done really well in, in, in certain countries. And the idea that it's out in lots of languages is cool to me. People can visit my little secret wildlife park for magical creatures, um, no matter what language they speak, I guess.
0: So clearly that speaks to universal principles that the book addresses. But what do you think are the universal principles that people most cling to or respond to?
1: I mean, the heart of Fablehaven is a brother and sister. Yeah, You've got a, a brother a brother, Seth, and a sister, Kendra. Their grandparents are the caretakers of these secret wildlife parks. Um, the grandparents have a very love-hate relationship of whether they should introduce the kids to this dangerous place. They partly want someone to carry on operating um, these preserves. They also know that these preserves can be dangerous and deadly. And so the, the discovery of of a place where these Creatures exist on these secret wildlife parks is, I think, a big part of what lures readers in.
0: So is there going to be a Fablehaven movie?
1: There could be. There's, there's been interest several times. We've optioned it before, and there's currently some stuff going on with an option perhaps now. Um, and I've learned not to hold my breath. It's just kind of like eventually the right team hopefully will get involved and, and, and get a good movie on screen. And we're working with some people now who could be that right team, and we'll just kind of see how it unfolds.
0: That's really cool. Be Are fun. you excited about that or is it or is it? one of those things where you think it's fine if it lives just as a book?
1: I was excited about it the first time it almost happened. And 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 since then I decided to uh, – I didn't like decide to. I just – I kind of like let myself get a little more calm about it. And there is the reality that whatever movie gets made is going to be how people envision Fablehaven in their heads probably in the future. And I don't like that because I like that right now. There's a million different fable havens in a million different brains. To me, that's cooler than than seeing Harry Potter as Daniel Radcliffe or whatever. Right? Like, like it was. I liked it better when I saw him my way. And there's something about a movie that kind of almost pollutes your ability to see it your own way. And so that side of it, you know, like that doesn't excite me too much to see that part of the book sort of ruined. But also it'd be really fun to see how somebody else dramatizes the story, to see it done as a movie, the increased awareness that would create for the story. Like th- those things would be positive enough that I'm willing to do it if we can, you know, have the right team.
0: How do you see the characters then? Did you have specific people in mind when you wrote them?
1: Um, you know, like some some of the characters in my stories remind me of people that I knew. I don't completely lift someone from my life and put them into the story, but the character Seth has some things in common with my brother Bryson, both were recklessly curious both could make the same mistake 10 different ways um and just you know keep not learning <laughs> like the general <laughs> principle it, it's it's very hard for me to communicate how I see them beyond the words I don't have the mm-hmm. visual talent to show it's like when an illustrator does a picture it's never exactly how I saw it but it's often a cool way to see it you know and that's what, what hopefully what the movie would be like it's not going to be exactly how I see it but hopefully it'll be a cool way to see it
0: Right. Yeah, I kind of hope they redo the Harry Potter movies in like 10 years and then it's something completely different. Yeah, I think yeah, that would yeah. be really cool. Someone else's vision of mm-hmm. that same
1: movie, that could that could be really fun. Mm-hmm. It, for me, it's very... like If I could, I would totally peek into everybody's minds and see their different fable havens because I bet many of them would have come up with things that they visually see that are cooler than what I had in my own sure, mind. Right? Yeah. That happens all the time when my illustrator, Brandon Dorman, will show me a picture and they'll be like, is that how you saw it? And I'd be like, no, that's a little better than how I saw. <laughs>
0: like, <laughs> but I like it. I'm I don't have the it. mind of an illustrator. Yeah. I didn't
1: see like the satyr quite that vividly. Um, but yeah, so like that's yeah, it would be really fun to peek into other people's brains if I could.
0: One phrase I know that gets used a lot when people talk about fantasy is the phrase world building. Yes. And I can't help but see parallels with that concept of world building with gospel principles, right? Creating worlds. So uh, do you see those parallels? I mean, do, they, do you have a correlation between what you write and what you believe in that way?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Like, I mean, I think we, we worship a God who is a creator, right? And like you, you could say, you know, like I think there's a line in Rent, like the opposite of war isn't peace. The opposite of war is creation, Right, if if you know, and you can think of it that way. If war is destruction, then the opposite might be creation.
0: Creation, yeah.
1: And and I know we worship a God who is a creator, and so anything creative seems to, in some way, kind of pay homage to that heritage. If that makes sense, right? Sure. Um, Whenever we write a book, we're going to do world building. It's just creating a story world where characters can live. The world building of you know a realistic novel, you might just be creating an illusion of a high school out of words, right? Um, For me, for fantasy or sci-fi, that world building tends to be an exaggerated element of the story because sometimes we're changing the rules of reality. Mm -hmm. And um, I totally think about how as I build story worlds, like, yeah, maybe someday, like, uh, you know, like like in the in the in the forever future, if you ever got to be um, have an opportunity to help create your own spirit family or your own world someday, like that would be. Like I'm having weird practice sessions or something, making up these crazy worlds.
0: You have a little leg up on everyone else. <laughs> that makes me wonder how much
1: latitude we'll have. You know what I mean? Like, like let's talk about centaurs. <laughs> but, but but, yeah, it crosses my mind that God is a world creator and that we're his children and he wants us to become like him. So maybe someday we could be doing something similar, right?
0: How does your faith or does your faith manifest itself in your writing?
1: So my faith is an enormous part of who I am, right? Like my my faith isn't just something I believe. It's, it's largely who I am and who I'm trying to be. And so because of that, it influences my writing indirectly all the time. You know, I don't write books that are overtly for or about, you know, Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. But I do write books that um, have good principles in them and, and people grappling with right and wrong. and And my idea of truth and my idea of right and wrong, which is informed by my faith— those things certainly um, can be found in my fiction. As I have conscious, conscientious characters face difficult problems, um, naturally you're going to have themes bubble up, and those themes are influenced by what I believe, I'm sure. Um, a, a lot of readers will see elements, they'll point out elements that, that harmonize with gospel truth in my books, and I, I'm glad that they do and I'm glad that they can.
0: Do you have an example of a gospel principle?
1: Um, A simple one would be like in Fablehaven, book one. Um, Kendra and Seth, our main characters, have to learn a lot about choice and consequences. They have to learn a lot about what happens as we break rules and and how sometimes you can make the choice, but you can't always choose the consequence. And we see that play out in a variety of ways um, throughout that book and throughout the series. Um, And then in Dragonwatch, which is the sequel series to Fablehaven, um, you find that they find themselves with greater responsibility than they used to have, and so you uh, you see ideas of like being a good steward, right? And you see ideas of good versus evil, like throughout. Like fantasy does usually does a really good job of tackling um, good versus evil and and what that might different ways that might look, right?
0: I always think fantasy is so interesting because it's this fantastical world, but at its root, it really is talking about ultimately good versus evil it's like kind of a really great way of having a simplistic look at at the world it
1: it gives us an exaggerated reality right where we can contemplate some real world things yeah and that's that's a useful thing that fantasy does it's neat because you can in fantasy because you can change the rules of reality Mm -hmm. and you can have creatures and monsters you can sometimes create a reality that better emphasizes the points you're trying to make it in the story than reality would emphasize those points. Mm, Does that so make interesting, sense? yeah. Mm, like you can create these representations of evil and these monsters that are, that are, you know, metaphors sometimes in certain ways, right?
0: Has it been fun to revisit these characters when you're writing Dragon Watch?
1: Dragon Watch features the same cast as Fablehaven, the same main characters. And so for me, it's like a blast. It's, it's taken out some of my very favorite characters to write and being able to bring them back to life and tell new stories with them. Um, I have a friend who sometimes says he feels like at the end of the book, no matter what happens, the stories are, the characters are kind of dead because they don't get to live mm. anymore and, and there's no more story where we get to see them live. We don't get to spend more time with them. And so it was fun to make Dragon Watch. It's a five-book sequel series to Fablehaven, essentially doubling you know what Fablehaven was. Fablehaven was five books and now Dragon Watch will be five books. And so it lets me let my characters live on stage for a lot longer and give them new challenges to try to overcome.
0: Do you do you know how it ends? Yeah. You've got it all planned out?
1: I've got a lot of it planned out. You know, I, I can't say I have every little detail, but I have a lot of the main events and the main things that happen. Um, I daydream about my stories for a long time before I start writing them. One of the things I like in a series is if things happen in book one and book two that pay off in interesting ways later on in the series in book four, book five, and for me, that usually takes some planning and some forethought to, to have a complicated story that will you know, feel like it was deliberately told.
0: I'm guessing in your writing, you learn things about people, maybe, as you're exploring how to write people and how to create people. I'm just wondering if you've learned anything about how God feels about us.
1: Interesting. I'll give you this. Like, I'll have to answer that. Let me answer that question in a couple ways. Definitely, when I'm writing a story, I... Um, it's a good exercise in empathy because I have to, to write those characters well, I have to try to understand how they're thinking and feeling and it puts me outside myself. Sometimes by putting myself outside myself, I will learn things I might not have learned without trying to think in someone else's brain. I had a character named Warren who, who who would take risks, but calculated risks. And he said, luck tends to disappear if you lean on it. And looking through his eyes, I was able to see that, though I, Looking through my own eyes, I don't think I would have ever seen it. Or I had a character named the Sphinx who was semi-immortal. And he had been laying plans for a long time. And he had the thought that patience mimics the power of infinity. And that was a thought I might not have had if I hadn't put on immortal shoes, right? Yeah. Now, as to understanding how much God loves us or how God sees us, for me, that's come more from my life than from my writings. Um, but I can say that I I, I strongly feel that God um, loves us and sees us. In fact, I I feel like God knows me better than I know myself. He knows my present self. He can see my future self, which I don't know. He can see my past self, elements of my past self that I've forgotten or that is before I can remember. Um, and so I think about how well He knows me, and that, and I know that He loves me. And it, when I remember those things, it makes me want to trust him so much, um, trust him to guide me. He, he knows what it looks like. If I'm going to heaven, he knows what that looks like, and he knows how I can get there. Um, when I think about him sending his son to die for us, that, that that witnesses of his love, almost maybe maybe thinking of that gospel story like a story, right? I know, like, when I think of the story of Abraham, and, and and when I look at Abraham, I, I remember thinking that sacrifice, being asked to sacrifice his son, seems like maybe the hardest thing I could think of in scriptures, except maybe for what the Savior did. And, and and I and I would sometimes listen to that story and be like, Goodness, how did how did he how did he do that for one? And and why would it be asked of him for two, right? And I remember when I had the aha moment of, Oh yeah, but Abraham didn't have to drop the knife. But there was one person who did have to drop the knife in scriptures, and that was our Heavenly Father, right? He he didn't just almost sacrifice his son. He had to carry it through. And when I think of it in those terms, it increases the power of scriptures, like, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? Like, let his beloved firstborn suffer and die for the rest of us. That's like, okay, he loves us a
0: lot. Yeah. So you're a father. I am four kids, correct? Four kids. So, is it tricky to balance your writing, your church service? It's one of the hardest things I do, and 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 this
1: is true for a lot of adults, right? Like, I mean, we're we're you know anyone who's a parent, anyone who's just an adult, there's things to balance in life, right? Like, you're trying to balance work, you're trying to balance relationships, you're trying to balance family. For me it's it's writing is the kind of job that can be absolutely all consuming. It will take as much time as you're willing to give it. You know, like the the way I've been successful in publishing and that means publishers will take whatever I write, which means however much I care to write, I can sell it and share it, which is so satisfying and I can make money from it, which helps the practical side of life, you know, like the not starving part. And and so it, it it was tricky. I think I've erred in the past sometimes on on letting You know, if you'd ever told me to write down your priorities, I would say, you know, God and family are top of my list. And I meant that. I'm not sure I was living it my whole life. You know, I I think there's been times when I let, in all practical terms, writing became the top of that list. And, And that's something that, you know, I've had to learn and adjust. And I'm not sure there is a perfect balance, but I'm always striving for some balance there.
0: So our podcast is called All In, which is a phrase that means different things to different people. Yeah. And specifically in a gospel context, what does all in mean to you?
1: All in speaks to consecration. And when I say consecration, I don't just mean like the law of consecration from the old church of you know like united order kind of stuff. I mean consecrating yourself to the gospel, if I and to the savior. If I was going to define what all in means to me, I would say it means you've decided that you're going to serve God no matter what. And how would I articulate that? There is nothing you can take from me and nothing you can withhold from me that will make me stop serving you. And there's nothing you can ask of me that I won't try my best to do, that I won't strive to do. Recognizing that my capacity is limited, but trying to let my desire be completely there. That's a really hard place to be. I, I've gone through some things in my life, and sometimes when hard things happen, there's a there's a reaction to say, "Well, because this happened, God must not love me," or "Because this happened, I'm out. Forget it." You know. And it's interesting because that cuts us off from the source of healing right when we most need it. And and for some reason, it's it's a human reflex. Um, I feel like being all in, if we can reach this state of consecration where we're fully committed. You know, even though we're we're imperfect and we lack the capacity to to be perfect, we can be fully committed to trying, right? Where I'll never leave, and, and and everything is it's sort of like everything is pre-obeyed, and everything is pre-sacrificed. Like you ask it, it's already. I don't have to sacrifice it; it's pre-sacrificed. It. I'm I'm all in. I'm consecrated, right? Um, the, I think that enables God to lead us. Remember, I mentioned how, you know, God God knows how to lead us to heaven. Right, he knows exactly how to lead you. That road is different for every heart. Every heart is a different mix of strengths and weaknesses. There's personal tutoring necessary for each of us to learn to become someone who belongs in heaven. And as we consecrate ourselves, as we're as we're all in, we free Heavenly Father to teach us those lessons that will get us there. Um, when we're not consecrated, some of those lessons would break us, and we would quit. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Also when we're not consecrated what we want is for the savior to change our hearts right like like the heart i have right now you know it's a good heart and i'm doing my best it's not a perfect heart right if i was like in the celestial kingdom in this moment it's it's fallen brandon mole in the celestial kingdom and i wouldn't really belong there like it would be weird when i yelled at my kids you know <laughs> or something right like like i would do something that was wrong or i'd have desires that were wrong we're asking Christ to heal our hearts, to change our hearts. He can't change our hearts unless we're consecrated. It would violate agency, right? Like like if, if he changed my heart, if he changed who I fundamentally was, that violates my agency unless I'm all in. If I'm all in, if I'm trying to be what he changes me to— You're choosing it. Then I'm choosing it. But if he changes who I fundamentally am without me being all in, he is changing me without my permission, really right? And so, I mean, that idea of trying to reach um, being all in, I mean, that's, that's, that's a huge part of coming to Christ.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks for the opportunity to talk to you.
0: Oh, please. Thank you so much for coming in. Love chatting with you. Thank you to Brandon Mull and you, the listener, for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Look for book two in the Dragon Watch series, wrath of the dragon king which is available now in deseret bookstores or wherever books are sold to listen to more episodes of all in visit ldsliving.com allin all in